with family and friends uh, gathered around, hopefully, the theme of thanksgiving and of intentionally giving thanks uh, to God for what He has done. This morning is going to kind of stand out on its own, uh, and we're going to look at a psalm that was likely sung during the harvest time, uh, during a time of thanksgiving for uh, the, the people of Israel. And it's going to take us in a direction that you might not anticipate, uh, and that's to consider uh, the, the spreading of thanksgiving to the nations in this issue of missions. Why does our church support missions? If you don't know what missions is, it's kind of from the Latin word mito, meaning to send, and it's just describing basically world evangelization. Why do we help send people to spread the gospel around the world? Every month, we budget almost $2,000 to help nine individuals and two organizations spread this good news about Jesus. Aren't there pressing needs around us that that money could be used for, that we see? Why do we insist on praying for these missions efforts? Should we be spending time praying for people who we hardly know, to go to people we definitely don't know in places of the world we've never been? Why do we read books and teach classes and translate Wolof and do all that we do to support the spread of the gospel around the world? To the typical Christian, missions might feel a little bit like flossing. You know it's a good idea. You won't openly question it in the midst of authorities. But it might just not make an appearance in your day-to-day life. Maybe that's a personal confession. I don't know. (laughs) But maybe if you're a Christian, that's how you view it. If you're not a Christian, it's even weirder. You might even view it as oppressive. So why do we invest in world evangelization with our money, prayers, energy, and passion? My answer is simple. Because God's multiplying grace has a goal. Because God's multiplying grace has a goal. Open your Bibles, if you haven't yet, to Psalm 67. Uh, It's a short psalm, and I'm going to read it for us here out of the English Standard Version. Why don't you go ahead and stand as we read God's Word. It's up on the screens there, too, for you who don't have it. Here's what this ancient psalm, this song that they sang, says. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Salah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Salah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Amen. You may be seated. After we spend a little bit of time looking at the context of the psalm, we're going to hit basically three questions. What is the goal 
of God's grace? Who is this song for? And how is the goal reached? What is the goal of God's grace? Who is this song for? And how is the goal reached? It's my prayer that God would use this to stir our hearts to be a church that increasingly loves and values missions. So, first, the environment of this psalm. It's in the Psalter, obviously. Uh, it's in Book 2. It's, if you want to break the psalms into albums, if you will, um, Psalm 65 through 68, or show this connection where the view of, of God's glory is starting to expand to now include all the nations. So you'll find that theme in verse, uh, Psalm 65 through 68. And our psalm is right in the middle of that. Like I said, it's likely a harvest psalm that was sung during a time of thanks for God's provision. It, it gave Israel this confidence that God is able to bless them, and it, it aimed the blessing that God gave to them in a certain direction. And that is towards the nations. It's kind of odd how this harvest psalm is so future-minded and spiritually oriented you don't hear a lot about wheat and grain and, and stuff other than a little bit in verse 6. But it's directed towards the nation. So that's kind of the environment of the psalm. So our first question is, what is the goal of God's grace? What is the goal of God's grace? You know, we oftentimes think about the purpose of God's grace in individualistic terms. right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. And we think of it in individual terms, and it's, it's good that we celebrate that grace breaks into our souls, that it renovates things there, and it's working in us as individuals. We should celebrate that. But though we are most familiar with how God is at work in us, the scriptures keep pushing us to see the corporate mission of God's grace, that it's much, much bigger than just us. The ultimate goal for God's grace is global worship. The ultimate goal for God's grace is global worship. God is preparing a massive gathering of diverse people to, to experience his kingdom forever and to worship him as a united people. See, God's renovation plans are not just individualistic. They are worldwide plans. We see this in Psalm 67. You'll notice there's kind of a chorus that comes up twice in verses 3 and 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. It's kind of the heart of this psalm, or the chorus, you could say. But there's other references to the nations. If you look in verse 2, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let, verse 7, let all the ends of the earth fear him. It's got a big, big view of what God's grace is doing in the world. The word all is used four times in seven verses. You know, when you hear, read the Old Testament and you hear it talk about the nations, a lot of times there's kind of a negative uh, sense that it gives, right? The nations are the ones who are typically the... The, the temptation towards idolatry, right? Don't be like the nations, it says over and over again. And so we can think that there's kind of this, this opposition between Israel and the rest of the nations, but here we see that the nations are connected to the final goal of God's grace. And that the heart of this psalmist is for the nations. 
You notice the first verse of our psalm sounds a lot like Aaron's blessing towards Israel in Numbers chapter 6. In Numbers 6 it says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Those of you who went to more liturgical churches are like, oh, that's in the Bible. That's what comes out of the Bible in Numbers 6. Um, but it, the first verse sounds a lot like that. And that blessing originally was aimed at Israel, but here the result is the praise of the nations. It's turned outward. And so God inspires this song that Israel would sing that would remind them of his missionary heart. God's heart is in the heart of this psalmist as he sings. And you might be thinking, really? Like missions in the Old Testament? I thought that was a New Testament thing. But, but if you're reading the Old Testament carefully, you'll see that God's grace and its world impact is all throughout the Old Testament. Think about it. Genesis 12, verse 3, when he's giving the covenant to Abram, what does he say? In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's stirring descriptions of this missionary heart of God in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. It's the nation saying that. It's likely that the greatest missionary moment in the scriptures are Jonah and Nineveh. Right? Where God rebukes Jonah at the end of the book saying, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left? God knows the population of Nineveh because he has a missionary heart. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is our certain future. It is not wishful thinking. And the missionary heart of God is present in the Old Testament. But we see it most clearly in the sending of Jesus, don't we? In Matthew 9, Jesus tells us to pray for more workers in the harvest. He says in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. He says in Matthew 24 that the end will only come after, quote, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. And so his final charge is to send the disciples out to make Disciples of all nations. And you remember the book of Acts. What chapter 1 verse 8. When he says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. For what? To be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's why at Pentecost the Holy Spirit empowers the disciples to speak in all these different languages. To kind of have this kaboom at the start of the church. The disciples even struggled in including the Gentiles into the church. Do you remember that? But there were things that God did that were undeniable things that they, get to, they got together in that meeting and were like, well, God's giving them the Holy Spirit. Like, how are you going to argue with that? Like, what, how, what do you want me to do? <laughs> this is God doing this. Because God has a missionary heart. See, followers of Jesus are sent ones. That's why Paul and Barnabas and others are set apart to be sent out. Jesus says that he's sending us as he was sent. Things come full circle in Galatians 3 verse 8 when it says, 
and the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, include other people than just Israel. He did that by preaching the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. You see, the globe has been the whole point from the start. And that's why when we get a glimpse at what the end is like in Revelation 7, there's this diverse gathering of untold millions of people to worship. Here's what, here's what the end looks like in Revelation 7, 9 to 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's certain. That's our future. Because God's goal the whole time has been to reach all the nations. And so when we sing a psalm like Psalm 67, this wasn't a foreign idea. This wasn't a new thought. The goal of God's grace has been global worship from the beginning. Let's stop and ask the question, is this our understanding of the purpose of God's grace? Is that scene from Revelation 7 something you can sing along with Psalm 67 and say, God, make that happen. Gather for yourself a people from every corner of this earth and make your name great amongst them. Is that the kind of hunger that our heart has? Do you see how this big view of God's grace and the purpose of his grace can keep you from self-centeredness? When you're having a tough week or a difficult time seeing how God is at work in your life, you remember that what God's grace is doing is far bigger than just you. And it's going to accomplish its purpose. See, missions is a great comfort when our individual lives aren't going well because the mission is bigger than us. One of the most impactful worship services that I've ever been to was in Salet, Bangladesh. Kelly and I went over there to, to meet up with uh, the folks who we're partnering with there. Drove through the night in this rickety van, bouncing all over this road. <laughs> it, was, it was madness. And we get all the way up to this little corner in Salette. And there's like, Kelly, five, six people there. That's it. That's church in Salette. One guy had been rejected by his family who was living under a bridge with his wife and kids because of the gospel. And we sat there and we fellowshiped after driving all night. And man, that reminded me that the kingdom of God is far, far bigger than my little puny life. He's doing so much more than what we remember and think about as his people. His grace has a mission that's far bigger than you and that's good, good news. To remember. That's the goal of God's grace. Our second question this morning is, who is this song for? The psalmist says, let all the peoples praise you, O God. And, and we want to understand what this songwriter is shooting for. Who does he have in mind? Is he talking about kind of the final end when the creator comes back and Jesus returns and demands that all people worship him? You know, there will be a time when Jesus returns when there will not be any religious preferences. 
There will be no philosophical pluralism, agnosticism, or atheism. All those philosophies will dry up under the massive revelation that there is one true triune God. All other competition for worship will cease, and Jesus will be the one object of worship even amongst those who don't trust him. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We believe that, right? No holdouts, no differing opinions. Is that the scene that the psalmist is describing? I don't think it is. Because when you look at the responses, there's, there's, a, there's a, a prayer, and this psalm is kind of a prayer as well, that he's assuming there's going to be a response on the part of the people. In verse 2, it says that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. There's an understanding of that. There's this response of praise by these people. There's a gladness and rejoicing by these nations. There's a fear that these nations have that's appropriate. for. So these are people who have submitted to Christ before that final forced worship setting. This is this song and this prayer of God Grab all the people from all the nations. Let them know you before that time comes. And the only reason they're able to do things like know and praise, rejoice, and fear is because they know who God is. That he's gracious and generous, like it says in verse 1. That he's full of saving power in verse 2. You think verse 4, why would they be glad? Why would they sing for joy? Because God's a fair judge because he's a faithful guide. That's why they're praising, because they know who God is. They know that God is the source of their blessing in verses 6 and 7, that he's sovereign over those things. So the psalmist is singing about a future time when people from various nations will love and know the one true God and respond in song to him. Does this sound familiar Think about the Lord's Prayer. What does it say? Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Which means, God, make your name revered everywhere. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, make this planet reflective of the kind of submission and rule that you have in heaven. When you've said that, that's what you're praying. You're praying what the psalmist is singing. God, make yourself known in Ethiopia and Bangladesh and Uzbekistan and all over the place. Make your name revered. Show people what you're like. And as you do that, expand your rule so that your will can be fulfilled. Do you see? That's the Lord's prayer. That's what we're seeking when we pray that. I read one author this week that makes a compelling case that the second half of the Lord's Prayer, give us our daily bread, forgive us our sins, lead us not into temptation, are all for the purpose of the mission of the first half of the prayer, which is expand your kingdom, make your name great, make yourself known. I think there might be something to that. So this song is for the nations before that final time that they would hallow the name of our Lord. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, this might make some sense out of why 
your friend or family member has been talking to you about Jesus and won't shut up about it. Because they and we are convinced that this final return is coming, that indeed through this worship of the one true God, that there is actual life there, that that's what we were designed to do, that human flourishing, that human history is all driving towards this revelation of this Jesus. And so this gospel is a bridge that's being built for us to walk across. That's why they go on and on about this, if you're not a Christian. I can remember being in Bangladesh and driving past this incredibly poor country, and we're out uh, in the further uh, areas away from Dhaka and away from the city, and they had built these cages where they kept their idols in them. These poor, poor, poor people would spend all this money to buy these idols and lock them up for a time when they needed it, and they'd float it out into the middle of a lake and let it sink. The human heart longs to worship. The human heart knows that there is a God. And may the prayer of our church and our individual families be, God, make your name known in places like that. Enough with sinking idols. May they know the one true God. So, we've seen that the goal of God's grace is this global worship, that this song is for the nations to come to him before that final time. And the last question is, how is this goal reached? How does God pull this off? How does he bring about this saving understanding of the nations to worship him? You might have been wondering, well, yeah, this is a weird harvest psalm, you know? How does this work? What's the connection between harvest and this desire to see the nations praise God? And the answer to how God plans to bring about the worship of the nations is found in the beginning and the end of our psalm in verse 1 and in verse 6. Look at verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Why? What is the net effect of that? What does that do? What does that accomplish in the real world? Next phrase. That, so that, in order that, with the result of, your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. In other words, may God be gracious, bless and be favorable towards Israel so that Israel will make him known to all the nations. You see the purpose? There's a reason why God blesses Israel. There's a goal there too. That Israel would become a, a launching place, a proclamation point for what he's doing in the world. He's saying, bless us for their sake. Look at verse 6. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. What is all this confidence and God's, God's ability to bless us result in. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. In other words, we are so confident that our God will provide for us that God will accomplish his global mission through that blessing, through that provision. 
So God accomplishes the worship of all the nations by giving his multiplying grace to his people. That's the plan. That's how he does it. See, God's people, you and I, are a channel, a means of God's salvation. This means that God's grace in you has a goal outside of you. God's grace to you is intended to result in giving grace to others, particularly the nations. Is that how we view God's grace to us? Is that what we expect it to do? Have you ever viewed the grace that God has given you as having a larger goal than your own life? Is it bigger than that? Could you ever imagine that the grace that you've been given was meant to be given to the nations? That's part of why God gave you grace. Isn't that amazing? Now, it's true that God's grace secures you in Christ and all those things. But it's going to create more than just individual security. It's going to have this ripple effect on others around you. And I would say even to the nations. And this isn't because you're the source of that grace, right? God is. We know that. But you participate in the expansion of that grace. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. How do we know it wasn't in vain? He says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's with me. You see, grace had this expanding effect, this multiplying effect in the life of Paul. And so God's intention for his grace has always been to spread it to others through you. He gives it to you for you and for them, too. Do you remember those examples we heard of earlier in the Bible? In Genesis 12. This covenant with Abram, he says, God says, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Thanks God for doing that. Why would you do that? So that you will be a blessing. Israel, Israel, Isaiah 49.6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too light a thing that. That's just not, not weighty enough of a matter. God goes on, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus was full of grace and truth to, be, to give that grace away, right? We've received his fullness. Turn in your Bibles really quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want to show you that this pattern of God giving grace in order to give it away is all over the Bible. Look at chapter 4 verse 7. It describes us, it says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And it talks about being afflicted and crushed and perplexed and all these things, but not destroyed. Verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus and also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Skip down to verse 15. Why would all this happen? Why would we carry around the death of Jesus in us? For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. We're given grace 
by the grace giver in order to give it away. Look down at chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. You see, knowing the fear of the Lord, now that's going to have an effect, persuading other people. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you see? You're given salvation in order to forget about yourself and live for other people. And you actually enjoy that somehow. Chapter 5, verse 18 He goes on, another example, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. You see, over and over again, Paul is saying, you're these broken jars of clay so that other people will be able to give thanks to the glory of God. You're out of your mind, constrained by the love of Christ because now you no longer live for yourselves. You've been reconciled to God, so now you've been entrusted with this ministry of reconciliation, so you're ambassadors. Do you see what he's saying? Grace multiplies. Grace that we've received is grace that's given. Grace is necessarily transferred to others. In fact, one of the proofs that grace has been received is that it's given away. You ever see that movie, Pay It Forward? Cute little kid in the classroom. Um, yeah, it's an inspirational movie where someone does something extraordinary for someone else and that kind of obligates that person who received that generous act to do three really nice things for people, big sacrificial things. It's kind of like a human kindness meets Amway kind of an idea, okay? And kind of all just trickles down and the tree gets bigger and the whole, you've, you've seen the spiel. And there's kind of a realism to this idea that makes it, makes it feasible because it assumes that there's a shelf life to self-sacrifice. That the initial act of kindness that was done to you warrants so much kindness to others in return, but then it stops. And you give according to what you've been given, and what you've you know, received has these limits around it. It's kind of like Thanksgiving, right? Where you're really grateful one day, and then you're like fighting over a TV at 5 a.m. in the morning on Black Friday. It's kind of the same idea. There's kind of a, a shelf life to self-sacrifice. But what if there was an initial act of kindness and grace that was so absurdly good that it would not only warrant lifelong acts of self-sacrifice, but it actually changed the nature of the person so they actually enjoyed giving more than receiving. What if that happened? That would be different than pay it forward. Human kindness meets Amway. Pay it forward says give to others strictly on the basis of gratitude. Give away what you've been given. Christianity says to not only give out of gratitude, it says that grace multiplies That as soon as you give it away, you still have some. And you give it away and you still have some. And the more that you give it away, the more grace you receive. It's this exponential multiplying kind of thing. There's not some traction here. It's multiplication. 
So you're not only looking back in gratitude, you're looking forward to what's, come, what's coming with your inheritance in Christ, and that can propel you to give more grace to others as well. And you continually and joyfully empty yourself for the good of other people. The cross of Christ was that initial act of grace that creates that multiplying, exponential ripple effect in the lives of his people until it reaches the end of the earth. Another example of this is when Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8, and I'll kind of summarize this, where Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you remember that? That's the first circle of how God's grace affects these Macedonians, these poor Macedonians. But then he holds up this Macedonian church as an example and he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. This initial act of grace in Jesus hits the Macedonians and it starts pouring out of them, even though they're poor, being incredibly generous. Paul kind of inserts this little verse, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, meaning it's not going to run out. And then that example of the Macedonian church continues on and is an example for others. He goes on in chapter 8 and says, for this ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. You see how this works? Grace multiplies. It's not pay it forward. John Piper says this. What I have designed is that you go and give and both gain. I have blessed you and I mean to double your blessing by making you a blessing. When I say, let the nations be glad, I mean, let your gladness be doubled in their gladness. Let me just ask us this morning, how far has the grace of God that's been given to you traveled? How far has the grace that God has given to you traveled? How far has it gone? Is it being given to others? Let's review quickly. God's grace has this goal, right? To gather worshipers from every nation. These worshipers are genuine. And the way that God gets grace to the end of the earth is by giving it to his people who then multiply it to give it to others. This is the foundation redemption for missions. This is the heart of it. This is the reason why missions exist. It's not because we're wealthy Americans and there are some people who could really use some help in the world. It's because God is the way he is and he set things up to work in a certain way. And can you see why it's absurd for a follower of Jesus Christ to be indifferent towards getting the gospel global? Do you see now why that is? How can we be cold to God's goal for the grace that we've been given? How can we not desire for untold billions of people to know, praise, rejoice, and fear the one true God? How can we hoard a grace that God intends to multiply? 
It's fighting against the nature of grace to be indifferent towards missions. And that's why when people come to me and say, well, I don't really have a heart, heart for missions. And, you know, I just say, give it time. Give it time. Get close to Jesus. Enjoy the glory of God long enough. And you will want other people to taste that. And you will love people that you don't see enough to fund and pray for their joy. You'll do that. Just give it time. The Holy Spirit will work in us to accomplish that. It's inevitable. And churches that that lose missionary heart and never gain it again, I would say, are dying already. Because there's something about the heart of God and the heart of his people that so align with missions that, that they're necessary for our life as God's people. So, how might we at Redemption Hill, in closing, stir and stoke this passion for a glo- this global goal that God has for his grace? A couple of practical things, and then I'll tell you to ignore the practical things at the end. First practical thing, uh, learn how God is extending his grace in the world. Get to know the missionaries that our church family supports. Sign up for their new letter, newsletters. Email them. They're in our directory for that reason. One idea that surfaced when Marilyn visited us is that maybe a life group would adopt a missionary for a year. Spend time praying for them. Do that if you want. Invest time learning how God's grace is expanding. There's a website called the Joshua Project, an incredible resource. Tons of resources. I've got some at the back table in the lobby. Joshua Project. There are prayer packets you can look at to show the 31 most populated frontier people groups. That's, there's no known gospel movement amongst them. There's less than 0.1 believers in the place in, in a city of more than 10 million people. And there's 31 people groups on that list. Maybe you just start there and pray for one. There's prayer guides and all kinds of apps and all kinds of things. There's these videos called Dispatches from the Front, which are a guy walking around and, and, and seeing what God is doing in the world that are encouraging. If you want some of those resources, I'll be at the table in the lobby after the service. But, but get educated what God is doing. It's encouraging. Wasn't it encouraging to hear what God is doing through Marilyn Escher last Sunday night? I mean, that was, it made a deep impact on me as I'm watching her life just model for us. God doesn't use a spotlight. He uses a flashlight. Remember when she said that? These are people who, who know something about the cost of the kingdom that we'd be helped by getting to know. You can pray. Pray for an unreached people group on an app on your phone. Pray for our missionaries. You can give. Right? You want your heart to grow in missions? Give money towards it. That might sound kind of weird, but that's when Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also, that follows. Maybe a simple resolution, which we've tried to follow, is whenever someone comes to you asking for support in missions, give it to them. Just do it every time, no matter what. Participate in what God is doing. Encourage people who are willing to go on short-term or considering uh, mid-term trips or long-term trips. Be an advocate. This is the only depressing statistic I'll read for you, okay? It's kind of like a classic mission sermon move, but only one. More money was embezzled from the church in 2017 than was given 
to foreign missions. I know our church is small, and I, I, but I want our witness to the world to be mighty. And I think that it's a mindset that feeds that. It's not us cutting a few corners and we'll have not, not as good snacks. and that kind of, That's not it. It's here. And it's here, right? And we need to pray that God would work on those things to make us a, a, a place that impacts the world for the gospel. You could also go. It's been a long-time desire for us to send a team of people every other year to an existing missionary that we support to encourage them to see what their lives are like, and then to come and report back. If you're willing to do that, I want to talk to you. We want, we want to get on the ground where these missionaries are. We want to relate to them and love them and see what God is doing in the world. There are all kinds of ways to help. But I want to remind us that it starts with the heart of this psalmist in wrapping up. This isn't just a practical matter. You're not reading one book away from like having a heart for missions. It's something that God's Spirit must do in us to sing with this psalmist. Let the nations praise you, O God. Let all the nations praise you. Could it be that we would be grace extenders to such a degree that the world might be impacted by it? Could it be that God is raising up people with a heart for the nations now in our midst and as a church, if we stir their passion, continue to be faithful in this, God will use us to send. Maybe. God, make it, make it so. C.T. Studd was a wealthy English athlete uh, who emphasized this life of faith and he gave away his entire inheritance. And... Uh, he started his mission work in China, and, and a wife and two kids later, he moved to India to continue reaching the unreached. And finally, nearing retirement, he settled in Africa, and his church did not support his decision. They said he was risking too much and told him to wait. And this is a portion of the letter he wrote back to the church. He said, too long we have been waiting on one another to begin. The time for waiting has passed. The hour of God has struck. War is declared. In God's holy name, let us arise and build. The God of heaven will fight for us. We will not build on the sand, but on the bedrock of Christ. And the gates and minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Should men such as us fear? Before the whole world, before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, we will dare to trust our God. We will venture our all for him. We will live and we will die for him, and we will do it with his joy, unspeakable, singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only in our God than live trusting in man. And when we come to our position, we realize the battle is already won, and the end of the glorious campaign is in sight because we will have the real holiness of God. Not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts, we will have a masculine holiness, one of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you 
that your missionary heart is abundantly evident on the pages of Scripture. It is undeniably the case that you love and desire the nations to worship you. Your word says that you are seeking worshipers in spirit and truth. That your goals are global and massive and bigger than us. So God, I pray for two seemingly contradictory things. One, a massive view of what you're doing in the world. And a greater appreciation for, for the, the way that you have shifted and moved. Even mission sending people from the West to Africa and Latin America and South Korea. God, you are doing a work, a massive work, in, in parts of the world that we aren't typically used to thinking of as, as mission-sending places, and you are doing it by your sovereign will. God, I pray you'd help us to, to see and to appreciate what you're doing on that level, to know that your grace is bigger than just us. But God, I pray for a concrete particularity about what we are to do. We don't want to live with our heads in the mission clouds. We don't want, as C.T. Studd said, to wait when the hour is now. So help us to be faithful in our generation, in our context, in our place. God, as we are sent ones into our neighborhoods and workplaces and, and Maryland and Illinois and the Philippines and all those things, help us to be faithful in those contexts. And at the same time, give us a heart for the nations. God, that's a dangerous prayer. But we, we pray it. And if it means loss, and if it means sacrifice, and if it means bloodshed, and, and uh, down payments gone, and inheritances spent, and all those things, make it so. We trust you, and we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.